Welcome to this edition of Gabrielle Dolan's Authentic Leadership Podcast. Join Gabrielle as she speaks to well-known leaders on authentic leadership values and storytelling. The aim of this podcast is to encourage you to embrace authenticity in both the professional and personal context. The stories and experience of her guests will be a wonderful catalyst for others to learn from. Welcome everyone and today I have the absolute pleasure of interviewing one of my professional idols, I would say, it'd be fair to say. Um, Stephen Denning is, I always refer to as the godfather of storytelling in organisations. When I first left um, National Australia Bank almost 15 years ago and was thinking of doing storytelling, the first book I read was uh, Steve's The Leader's Guide to Storytelling. And this is just one of his many books he wrote. He, uh, Steve, you started with The Springboard. You've done storytelling in organisations. You've done Squirrel Link, um, The Leader's Guide to Storytelling, The Secret Language of Leadership, The Leader's Guide to Radical Management, and your most recent one, The Age of Agile. So it was with great pleasure I welcome Steve. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Gabriel. Yeah, and Steve is coming from his hometown in Washington, D.C. So, Steve, I wanted to ask you, what what was your, how did you get into storytelling? I mean, because you were into storytelling well before anyone else, anyone else. Um, so how did you sort of start to realise the power of story? Well, it's a strange story. <laughs> <laughs> my, my home begins in my hometown, which I would regard as Sydney, not... Yeah, you were, yes, you were born in Sydney. Born in Sydney. I grew up there and um, I studied psychology and law at Sydney University, worked as a lawyer in Sydney. And then I did study some more law at Oxford University and I joined the World Bank. And I was a very left brain analytic kind of person. Clear, crisp, succinct, bottom line. That was me. And uh, as you probably no big organizations just love that kind of person. They do. The exact antithesis of a storyteller. And uh, so I, uh, as the left brain analytic person, climbed up the managerial ladder in the World Bank and eventually became uh, director of Africa region. And um, Africa region handled about a third of the lending operation in this big organization. So I beginning to think this was a, a pretty important kind of position. But then as things happen in big organizations, the scene abruptly changed. The president of the World Bank suddenly died. And my boss unexpectedly retired and somebody else was appointed to my position. I see things not going too well for me <laughs> in the World Bank. So I went to see the top management and asked them, do you have anything in mind for me? Not really, they said, not really. But, happens in big organizations, but I pressed them quite a bit. And eventually I, um, they said, why don't you go and look into information? Now, information in 1996, when we were there, was like the garage or the cafeteria. So I was not being offered a promotion. I was being sent to Siberia. And uh, so I looked into information and we were drowning in information all over the place. Couldn't find anything. Obviously had to clean this mess up. Um, and I said, well, that would save us money, but it would still wouldn't solve our problem, which was to find our role in life. Because the World Bank, people were asking, why do we need the World Bank? Big lending organization, 
private sector now providing all this money? Why don't we close the World Bank down? 50 years is enough. Let's put this poor old organization out of its misery. So I have to find a different role in life. So I had another thought. Why don't we change our strategy? Why don't we share our knowledge? As it happened, the World Bank had tremendous expertise in all sorts of different areas, but very difficult to get access to it. Mm. So I said, why don't we share our knowledge? And um, I thought this was actually a pretty good idea. So I set out without having any position and in the process of being kicked out of the World Bank uh, to try to change the strategy of the organization. So if, no, nothing to lose, hey? You ask, what are my chances of succeeding <laughs> in the world's most change-resistant organization? The answer is zero. I have zero chance of pulling this off. And I did pull it off. And, um, and in fact, we changed the strategy and the World Bank became a world leader in knowledge sharing. Uh, I've never been a world leader in any management field before. So people, when I left the World Bank, wanted to know what did I do. <laughs> you must have been something, doing something really strange. Oh, sorry, excuse me. Go on, keep going. You must have been doing something really strange <laughs> uh, in order to change the strategy from a position where you had no position. Um, you should have failed. So how did you succeed? And I had to confess that I'd been using the power of storytelling to persuade people to embrace ideas that they didn't want to hear about. And uh, so people realized, well, this is actually a pretty useful kind of thing. So I spent the next 10 years wandering around the Fortune 500, the biggest firms in the world, showing them how to use the power of storytelling. So that's how I got into it. When, did, you, did you have the realisation yourself, you know, when you said that you were very left brain data analytical and when you shared a story, maybe for the first time and, and it worked, was it a surprise to you that, that the story worked more than the facts and figures? Absolutely. I, um, I was giving people reasons and they didn't listen. I gave them slides. They didn't watch. I gave them analysis. They paid no attention. Basically... Uh, nothing worked. I said, why don't we share our knowledge? They said, that, Steve, this is the world. Bank! Bank! Lend money! Pays your salary. Keep your eye on the ball. We're a lending organization. Is that clear? <laughs> so um, that didn't work. And I, so I was a desperate man. And a desperate man will do desperate things. So actually, I uh, was having lunch with someone and he told me about something. And so I wove that into my presentations and suddenly people started to listen. So it was a very, very simple story. Mm. I'd be talking about the future of the World Bank and what's it going to be like. Well, I said, it's going to be like today. Let me tell you about something that happened just a few months ago. In June 1995, this was in early 1996, in June 1995, a health worker in a little village in Zambia in Africa logged on to the website for the Center for Disease Control in Atlanta, Georgia, and got the answer to a question on how to treat malaria. Now that was June 1995, not June 2019. Wasn't the capital of Zambia. It was a little village 600 kilometers away. And this is not a rich country. This is Zambia, one of the poorest countries in the world. But you know the most important part of this picture for us in the World Bank? The World Bank is not in this picture. The World Bank does not have its knowledge organized to share with all the millions of people who make decisions about poverty. But just imagine if it was. 
just imagine if we got organized, think what an organization we could become. And yeah, that started to resonate first with staff, then managers, and then senior managers, and then the president of the World Bank heard about it. He said, right, let's do it. He went to the annual meeting of the World Bank a few days later and announced that astonished finance ministers of the world, we are going to share our knowledge with the world. We are going to become the knowledge bank. Mm. The people who'd sent me to Siberia just a few months before this announcement are absolutely horrified because this was the worst case scenario because they thought they'd gotten rid of this guy. But now the man from Siberia was back. Yeah, and not, uh, and not only back, but has somehow managed to co-opt the whole group of staff and managers, and now even the president of the World Bank to pursue this lunatic idea of becoming a knowledge sharing organization. So the next four years were a whole set of battles and struggles as to whether we were going to implement what the president had already announced we were going to implement and what it would look like. And mm. um, I. Um, found that when I didn't tell a story like that Zambia story, we were uh, having arguments and fights and battles. Um, but when I did tell it, suddenly we were moving forward into the future. So not being totally unobservant, I kept telling stories. But I wasn't really paying much attention to it. Um, you just knew it worked. I was just sort of doing it and kept things that worked I did more of and the things that didn't work I did less of. But, but then was a, about uh, 18 months later, I was at a conference organized by Deloitte, I think it was, and people were pressing me, well, what were you doing? You must have been doing something different. Yeah. <laughs> so I put up a slide. Maybe it's got something to do with storytelling. That was all. Maybe it's got something to do yeah. with storytelling. And um, I didn't think much about it. And um, after the, the session, though, somebody came up to me from Harvard Business um, School Books and um, said, we want you to write a book. And I said, about what? <laughs> <laughs> they said about storytelling. We think this is going to be a big idea and we'd like you to write a book about it. And I told them, what, look, what, yeah, what year was that? This is 1998. Okay. So, and I, so I said, well, look, you know, the only thing I know about storytelling is what's in that slide. Yeah. Maybe, it's maybe it's got something to do with storytelling. Now they said, well, you're a bright young person, you can, uh, you'll figure it out and we'll have a lovely book. Mm. I, th I think there's some beautiful synergy in the fact that you, um, I think story is the most powerful way to share knowledge and you use story to convince the World Bank to become a knowledge sharing organization. Well, of course, of course. Mm. And so, um, yeah, so I, I wrote the book and eventually it got published and then people started to think about that. So I set out to, uh, have storytelling accepted as a basic leadership tool. And yeah. so it's now in, incorporated in um, uh, university courses and um, that book, The Leader's Guide to Storytelling has become a university text in many uh, colleges. So um, in fact, after 10 years, I thought basically that battle has been won. I, I, can, I can find some new challenge. And, uh, <laughs> Well, there's people like me who are still um, taking on the battle for you, but you certainly started it. And, and I can absolutely tell you this with all honesty, and I, and I have told you this, so we, we've met a couple of times when you've been in Melbourne. The, the fact that you had written a book and that you were a senior exec from a World Bank, 
that gave to me that sort of said that this has got to be, you know, some legitimacy in this. It's got to be some, it's got to be serious. It's got to be credible. If a senior exec at the World Bank has, has written a book on it um, and then and you've shown and proved that, uh, that it absolutely does work. So thank you. Thank, I thank you for giving me the, the push in my career. And um, I'm sure all my clients that have been touched by my work are thanking you as well. Because I, if I had not have read your book, um, mm -hmm. I probably would not be here where I am today. So thank you for that. Um, how have you noticed, I mean, you're right, you, you started to, you know, back, back then to get storytelling seen as a legitimate, legitimate leadership skill and communication skill, which it, uh, it has now, it has been seen, rightly seen that. How have you seen storytelling change? Because it's, it's actually quite popular at the moment. And um, to me, there's a concern that people are using the word story when they're actually not telling a story. Do you? Have you got any thoughts on where storytelling's heading? Uh, well, I must say I don't have a, a magisterial overview of everything that's going on. <laughs> you don't? The human, human race spends most of their time, most of their lives telling stories. So, yeah. I mean, it's a huge subject. And um, but the expertise in the area, I think, is, is still quite sparse uh, and that people Oh yeah, story. Uh, let, let's tell stories. But um, the purposeful storytelling uh, involves some expertise, which is actually not widely understood or shared. And um, and um, uh, and as you say, most many people don't even recognize what's the difference between a, a story and um, and a piece of abstract information. Yeah. Mm. I was encountering that even just this last week when, with some people that um, I gave a kind of impromptu uh, seminar on storytelling when they, they were asking, well, how do we ever persuade top management to change their minds about something? And, and um, people were despairing that there was any, any way to do it. So I was showing them, well, there is a way. And it doesn't always work, but the other stuff doesn't work at all. In fact, the other stuff is counterproductive. <laughs> giving, giving people reasons to do something, if the person already has a contrary view uh, to what you are trying to convince them of, it's not that your reasons will be ineffective. Everything, every word you're saying is counterproductive. Every word you're saying is driving your audience deeper into opposition to whatever you're trying to say because there's a this phenomenon known as the confirmation bias mm. uh, by which um, uh, studies have been done every country every culture whereas you have a point of view you get a conflicting information about it your immediate tendency is not to change your point of view but to mm. question the incoming information and the person who's giving you the incoming information so there's a to change organizations by giving people who don't agree with you reasons to change is a disastrous course of action. Yeah. Uh, so you have to perform this judo trick of um, persuading people to change even before you give them the reasons for change. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I often have people sort of go, well, you know, storytelling, does it always work? I go, no, look, it doesn't always work. But 
but you know, unless the, if we're just using logic and logic and logic to try to influence people, um, that's not working either. And, and I like your thing. It's probably um, counterproductive to what you're actually trying to achieve. Right. Absolutely. So mm. this is, um, and the more skilled you're, you are at it, the more you understand it, um, the more effective you can become. And you can then spend a lifetime becoming more and more effective at it. And, um, and so understanding, uh, understanding the listener is a key part of the um, picture. Um, that if you need, uh, unable to get inside the listener's world and understand what they are thinking and why they have the point of view that they have, and it's going to be very difficult for you to craft a story that will resonate with them. And you also have to be crystal clear on what exactly is it you're trying to communicate. Often the storytelling fails because the, the speaker doesn't have a clear idea of what they're trying to communicate. So as a result, um, your fuzzy thought gets transformed as a fuzzy thought and doesn't lead to action. And, uh, and you also um, need to be thinking, are you the right person to be telling the story? But, um, uh, so what do you mean by that? Tell me a little bit more about that. What are you, the question, are you the right person to be sharing that story? Well, if you are distrusted, uh, if you are yeah. despised, if you are regarded as a troublemaker, <laughs> as, as often people are trying to change things up, um, then uh, people instinctively will not be listening to you simply because it's you who's telling the story. And in fact, in the, in the World Bank, how the transition actually happened, how we made the sale uh, to the president of the World Bank um, is, uh, is, illustrates that. Because I'd been uh, talking to the directors and vice presidents, and I'd built up a whole web of people um, at fairly senior positions who uh, thought this was a really good idea. Uh, but there was also a set of centurion guards surrounding the president and protecting uh, him from ever hearing any, any good ideas. Um, and um, so um, if I'd been the, um, uh, if I'd been the person to actually um, try to, to tell the story to the president, it probably wouldn't have worked because I was, I was regarded as a troublemaker yeah, yeah. Uh, but I was conniving with the his vice president, and I was actually talking with the yeah. one of the vice presidents. We we're coming up to the annual meeting of the World Bank, uh, perfect occasion to sort of announce this idea. And so we were thinking, well, what if we actually sneaked into the president's office and we'd sell this idea to him? <laughs> and he was looking around for big ideas, and this was the big idea. And yeah. we kind of thought he would fall in love with it um, yeah. but getting access was a problem because coming up to the annual meeting these centurion guards were on high alert because there were all sorts of people trying to get crazy ideas uh, to the president and they were terribly worried that in fact he would hear about one of them and, and fall in love with it <laughs> um, so if we there was a real chance we would get caught and we, there would be punishment and sanctions and hangings and executions. And <laughs> <laughs> you so took we the were, anyway. 
we were just deciding, well, it's too dangerous right now. So what we'll do is we'll wait till after the annual meeting and then and they're no longer on high alert, then we'll sneak in and we'll make the sale. And just at that moment, as it happened that in this vice president's office, the phone rang and who should it be? It happens to be the president of the World Bank who knew and liked this vice president and trusted this vice president. And he said, look, I'm sitting in a, in a traffic jam in a taxi in New York and I'm reading the draft of my annual meeting speech and it's bullshit. <laughs> There's not a single idea in it. Surely in the whole World Bank, there's at least one good idea. <laughs> and the vice president said, well, as a matter of fact. <laughs> Funny you should say that. <laughs> Let me tell you about it. So five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes. He said, yeah, that's pretty interesting. He went to dinner that night, uh, tried out his, the idea on his dinner guest. They said, it's fabulous, go for it. And he came in the next day and ordered the vice president and me to draft his speech for the board of directors, which he gave. And then a week later, he's giving that speech to the annual, annual meeting, the finance directors of the world, wow. the finance ministers of the world. And of course, <laughs> the centurion guards are apoplectic because this was exactly the thing they were trying to avoid. And yet it happened. But you see, if I'd told the story, if I'd tried to get into the get to the president he didn't trust me for, uh, because the centurion guards had told him i was terrible trouble yeah, and, yeah. Uh, so finding the right person to tell the story is often the trick i mean we had the story we had the idea um and we had the the listener was the perfect listener but the problem was i was the wrong person to be telling the story so you, you have to think of this not as something that you have to do but thinking who is the best person, uh, best placed person to make the sale and tell the yeah. story. Yeah, I see that um, in a lot of organisations. So first of all, wrapping up the skilling piece that, you know, you're reinforcing what I do, that this is an absolute, absolute skill you've got to learn. Um, but sometimes people come and they just want to, they just want to train the CEO or the senior leadership team in telling the story. And I go, no, you've got to train, you know, the, the sort of the leaders underneath, the leaders that are touching. So, you know, the employee has greater trust perhaps with their leader. So the story should be coming from them, not two or three levels up. So I think that story reinforces that. Yeah. Um, how did you feel, Steve? How did you feel when, like, you know, when you're sitting in the office and your idea got up? How, like, that must have been just a, such a special moment for you, was it? Well, it was hard to believe. <laughs> It was like a fairy tale. Yeah. I mean, here you'd been banging your head against the wall for 20 years and not making any progress at all. And mm. suddenly there's the president telling the finance ministers of the world, this is, this is the future. This is the way it's going to be. And yeah. Well, wow. <laughs> <laughs> Did you keep pinching yourself? Like, like you must have thought this is not real. I'm going to wake up at some stage. Or someone would rise up and say, that's a crazy idea. That's a <laughs> How did you? Why did you Don't no. listen to him. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, uh, and then, but it, I mean, the, the battles didn't end. I mean, the fact that the, uh, the, fact the president had announced the thing, um, it, it simply went into a different um, kind of mode to try to undermine it. So it... Uh, so the next four years were a whole set of battles and struggles uh, as to whether this idea was going to be implemented or not. Yeah, excellent. And, uh, 
so I, you have to keep telling stories. You know, yeah. To... Yeah, that's the other thing too. The stories don't just end on one story. You got to keep keep sharing them. Keep sharing them. But on the other hand, I mean, four years we only had six stories. Not like we had okay. a thousand. Yeah. A thousand stories. You just keep uh, using I mean, those same ones. Uh, because the. I mean, the funny thing about this particular kind of story, what I call the springboard story, is that it's not your story at all that is doing the work. The, the way the work is the person is telling themselves a story. It's the little voice in the head. When people say, well, what do you mean by the little voice in the head? That's what I mean. The, the little voice <laughs> just asks, <laughs> what do you mean by the little, little voice in the head? When, yeah. when I'm talking to you, I mean, the little voice in the head is, is going on all the time. Oh, this is interesting. Oh, that's boring. I mean, why did I ever get in this conversation? Uh, oh, this is really exciting. I want to hear more. Um, all of that stuff is going on inside the listener's head. And, yeah. and the listener might be saying, well, I should never have come. And I, I really should get out and, and, and answer all my humans or something. Yeah. But, um, so what you're trying to do is get the attention of the little voice in the head and to get the little voice in the head to tell a new story. And it's this new story, which is actually driving the action. So I'm telling you about what happened in Zambia, but you don't work in Zambia. Um, you might work in any other field, but uh, if things are going right, you're starting to say to yourself, well, yeah, I've got knowledge. I've, um, I could be sharing my knowledge with the world. Of yeah. course, I'd have to get organized, I'd have to have a website, I'd have to get others involved, I'd have to get some resources. Why don't I do it? Mm -hmm. I could go out and start sharing my knowledge with the world. I've suddenly had a great idea, and now it's not my idea anymore. It's the listener's idea. It's their idea, and they invented it, they created it, and they believe in it, and they go out. So you talk to 50 people, and 50 people have created the little voice in the head. Each person has created an action plan carefully and specifically crafted for their individual circumstances. Now, if you ask, how long would it take for me to craft 50 action plans for all these 50 individuals whose situation and backgrounds, I don't know. It would take me months, years. Yeah. But here in minutes, even while I'm talking, they are crafting action plans <laughs> even as I speak. Mm -hmm. and, and the thing is about why the stories didn't wear out is that it's not the story itself. The story sparks a new story. And so the story just uh, gets people to think, well, I could be doing this. I could be doing And they invent something which is new and fresh. So you, they might hear the story 10 times, but each time they hear it, they're imagining a new story in their own circumstances. And that's what they're listening to, not, not me. Yeah, so I love right. that. I, I often say that when you share a story, um, you're actually suspending judgment because people are listening to it. And I, I think it's, it's sort of what you're saying. It actually just shuts up the little voice in the head for a while to listen right. to the story and, and they connect with it. One, one of the great bits of advice around really good storytelling I got from you and, and reading your books, and it was that those type of endings that you just said with Zambia, you know, imagine if, like imagine, and it, it gets people sparking their own imagine. Yeah, and, and that's how they really connect to it. I'm directly appealing to the little voice in the head. You are. I'm saying, come on, little voice in the head. Come to me, come to you me. You can do it. What if, 
Just imagine, just think. Just think. You get that stupid person who live, you live inside. This is your chance to invent the future. Yeah. And off, off to the races. But you also have to get their intention. That's the other key thing in this is that um, you have to realize that most people aren't listening. Yeah. They are thinking about their date last night or what they're going to have for lunch. Anything, Anything but what you're saying. saying. They're just vaguely aware someone is babbling on at the front of the room about something or other some stupid idea and they're not really paying attention so you have to not only get their attention you have to get their rapt attention so that they are hanging on every word and so the key is you have one of these devices to get attention which are kind of the opposite of the story that sparks action the story that sparks action has a happy ending it has a positive tone hollywood's right has to have a happy ending but um, because you only can inspire people with a positive story. But if you um, want to get their attention, negative stories are generally much better because mm -hmm. people are continually surveying the world to find, to watch out for things that might harm them. And um, so stories that are about problems they are currently concerned with, um, issues that they are worried about, those are the things that get their attention. Yeah. So you might say you're worried about um, sales are going down. Well, actually, sales are worse, worse than you think they are. Let me tell you how bad the sales really are and how they're going to get even worse. Let me tell you how bad they're going to really become. And now, okay, they're listening because I'm talking about their problem. I'm talking about in stark negative terms yeah. and it's very yeah. worrying. And so now they're, now they're ready to listen. Yeah. Yeah. I often, I often say that, you know, use negative stories if you like almost need to raise awareness to a problem or if like, and you said they think it's a problem, but no, it's a bigger problem. And then quickly move to the positive stories to, you know, inspire some action. Right. Yeah. Hey, what your, your latest book, the age of agile, that's uh, that was published last year. How, how's that going? And, and uh, we are in an age of agile. So what's that about? Well, about change, changing the world. <laughs> changing the world one story at a time uh well we're moving wholesale now and so this is the kind this is a huge global movement uh, about getting work done in a different way getting yeah. work in a way that's more fun for the people doing the work that's more uh, value for the people for whom the work is done the customers that makes more money for the company and is better for society so mm. it's a uh, beautiful thing that's happening actually that uh, for once sort of what it, human values are linked up with financial values and uh, and so firms that are actually pursuing this are making gobs of money <laughs> yeah uh, and, and having highly satisfied staff and in fact very difficult to attract top talent unless you're operating in this way mm. uh, um, so it's fun to work in and um and so it's become a huge global movement, but it's it's very threatening to uh, managers who are used to working in a top-down hierarchy and used to giving commands and instructions and telling people what to do and punishing people and firing people and doing all this sort of stuff of bureaucracies. Um, those people feel very threatened, um, and so it's a it's a huge shift and. Uh, and so it's it's happening on a large scale 
Um, it is, yeah. It's, it's probably one of the biggest changes I've seen in organisations for probably the last 20 or so years, as in the way they operate. Um, but it's still, some of the large organisations are still, like, they do pockets of agile. And it's right, just like little right. pockets and not. Right. No, that's because it's, it is a big change. But yeah. um, I mean, the, the beauty of it is that um, the marketplaces were requiring it. And um, there's been this shift in power from the buyer to the seller. So the customer is basically the boss. And unless you're in this mode, you cannot keep up with what yep. the needs are. And yeah. uh, so we were just in a visit to Toyota last, last week. And um, so Toyota is sort of, has been generally regarded as, I mean, one of the best managed firms in the whole, the whole wide world. Um, they have discovered it's not enough. They, the management system, the lean, Toyota production system that without agile they simply can't keep up with the marketplace yeah. and so they're deep into a huge agile transformation mm. so this mm. is this is an exciting wave that's happening all around the world and the problem now is there's a whole lot of sort of politely called agile in name only <laughs> or what I call what I call fake agile yeah. That's like, you know, that's funny. It's like there's stuff like that's called it's story in name only where it's like they, they call it a story, but it's not a story. Maybe I'll do, maybe it's a fake story. Oh, no, fake stories already got another connotation, hasn't it? Fake news, fake stories. What's uh, what's the next book, Steve, do you think? Well, what's next for you? Well, I think, I mean, the age of Agile was fairly large in scope, but I, this is really something that, I believe will change the whole of society and that every organization, every government department, every uh, commercial organization will, will be involved in this change. And so sketching out uh, what this looks like and how it's different and uh, why it's um, uh, potentially a good thing and how it's going wrong in many organizations and, uh, and how it's being um, commercialized in a bad way. But, um, so there's, there's good news and there's bad news. It's mainly good news, but there's certainly a lot, a lot of things to worry about. Mm. Well, you, you certainly, um, you know, you're changing the landscape with storytelling 20, 30 years ago and now with Agile. And what, what, what do you do when you're not writing and changing the world for the better? What do you do in your, your spare time? <laughs> what is spare time? <laughs> No, it's, for me, this is fun. This is this is play, and um, and uh, obviously, I listen to music. And we're making a movie about uh, about oh, Agile, wow. a documentary movie, and um, yeah. so that's been fun to learn how to make a documentary movie. And yeah. um, it uh, hopefully will come out next year. And um, and the idea is to have something that can reach a much wider group of people than managers, and will because most people have never heard of Agile. Mm. Uh, we want to make it a household word so everyone knows that this is this is the way you, you try to get things done. We, the movie will have a, a family of, um, they have six kids and they manage their family with Agile. And um, so like, well, <laughs> I that's mean, managing, amazing. Managing six kids is, uh, is a, a handful. And... Uh, and they do it and so they have kids range from you know, four years to 22 years and so there's a wide range and and the kids love it i mean i was 
I'd met the guy and he told me, oh, the family loves the family. I thought, oh, yeah, let's see. <laughs> Wait till we meet. <laughs> I thought, this is dad's thing. Okay, we go along with dad's thing. But no, it, when they, um, they came to Washington, actually, from, they live in St. Louis, and, um, and they managed their visit using, using a Kanban board. And uh, from the 22-year-old to the four-year-old, they were... Um, that, that's how they planned their visit. The, they set their priorities on the things they wanted to do and who was responsible for what. And um, it, and uh, it it really brought it's brought the family together. So uh, often siblings are squabbling with each other and uh, uh, not very cooperative. But they um, they're in a mode where they sort of if someone's behind in their homework. Someone else will pitch in because then the in the stand-up, they, they hear that someone else is having a problem. So it's really quite a... So from a huge organization like Toyota with 450,000 people down to a, a family of two parents and six kids. Um, wow. That, that sounds really intriguing. I often... Um, so again, you know, the link to storytelling, I often say, you know, we share stories at home with our family, with our kids, because we know it's a powerful way to influence let's do it in business. And you're, you're, you've done that. And now you're taking something that really works in business and taking it to the family. So it's a, I, I look forward to seeing that documentary when it comes out. Well, thank you. Steve, thank you so much for being part of this. Like I said, you are one of my absolute professional idols and I can humbly hand on heart say I would not be here doing this if it wasn't for your early work um, in the field. Um, I sort of, there's even a hardcover, can you feel this one of the, of the book? Um, so thank you so much. And, um, you know, on behalf, like I said before, on behalf of me and, and on behalf of all the clients that I have helped through story, a huge um, debt of honour goes to you for your early work in pioneering what is absolutely a key leadership and communication skills. So thank you very much. And we, I wish you all the best with your new documentary and all the other work you're doing. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. All the best. Thanks, Steve. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast in the Authentic Leadership series. Visit the resource library on Gabrielle's website to access a collection of free material on business storytelling and thought leadership.